Hello there, how's it going? Uh, I wanted to uh, do a third part to this uh, exp exploration of guilt. Uh, I did a reflection a couple of days ago just looking at this uh, saying of Lacan's uh, in seminar seven where he says uh, we are guilty of giving ground relative to our desire and uh, I started to kind of unpack that and every time I do a reflection people ask really good questions and so I did a second one and now I'm going to do a third one looking at the idea of freedom and what does it mean uh, to have your desire? So somebody asked that question to me, uh, what does it mean, your desire? Because there's a whole pile of conflictual ideas here. I mean, if you're obeying the law, then you have a desire to obey the law. Uh, so uh, there's a sense in which your desire is caught up in that. So going to explore a little bit of that. And then potentially this is going to be a, a you know, 180 part thing, because I'm sure lots of interesting questions will arise out of this as well. Um, so just another thing that came up as well is a couple of people were uh, talking about their concrete desires. What if I desire chocolate biscuits? What if I desire to pull the legs off spiders? Um, basically, we're not talking about what anyone's particular desires are, good or bad or strange or not. Uh, what uh, we're looking at here is simply how desire is connected to demand and guilt, right? So we just basically, it's, it's called a structural analysis. So we're trying to get to a very basic understanding. Uh, and then, you know, I might do something, one, on what desire is. That would be interesting to explore. And also, uh, what do we do with unhealthy desires that are at the level of what's called the imaginary, the level of everyday life, uh, desires that we have that aren't helpful. I've done all of that, by the way, in more systematic ways uh, on my Patreon. So if you sign up there, uh, this is a little bit of an advert, <laughs> um, you've got like, there's probably over a hundred hours of courses and lectures and all of this stuff. But um, I also wanna do, you know, just these free things and uh, explore these with you on YouTube and on Facebook. So um, yeah, so this is basically about desire in its most abstract form. Uh, even in the previous uh, seminars I was talking about, or reflections, I was talking about desire structures, uh, but we're not even talking about that really. We're just talking about how does desire connect to demand and guilt? And if we understand that, uh, it can be useful for us individually and it can be uh, useful. It's obviously a useful thing within philosophy to know and within, within analysis to help people. Um, okay, so um, where to start? Yeah, in a way, the idea of your desire, when Lacan says uh, the only thing of which you're guilty is giving way relative to your desire. Well, what does this idea of your desire mean? I mean, it, can't really mean that you have some inherent uh, pre-given desires that you will discover over time. If your parents just leave you to it, you will naturally find yourself wanting to play with some toys more than others and find yourself wanting to be an accountant or an artist or whatever, right? Um, obviously, our desires uh, in relation to mimesis, mimetic desire, our desires are uh, discovered and created in relationship to others. We desire the desire of the ones that we desire, right? That's the most precious material in the world is the, the desire of the ones that we desire. And it's not just that we desire the desire of the ones that we desire, 
It's also that we desire what they desire. And you see this all the time in advertising. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a trope that happens all the time is you're trying to get, if say I look up to some sort of star or sports figure and then on an advert I see them desiring something, then I find myself becoming interested in that. But even if you're going out with somebody and they have an interest in say French film, and uh, you've never thought about French film in your life before, but uh, maybe over time you start to kind of take an interest in French film and then you think it's your desire, you think it's yours, but it kind of was given to you by another and then maybe you just break up and you're trying to work out who gets the DVD collection of French cinema and you argue about it because you both feel it's your desire, right? So our desire is definitely uh, the desire of the other and it starts there. And of course, if you just go right back to when you're an infant, uh, whenever you, at the very, very beginning, there is no real kind of desire as such, right? There's certain needs. That's another term, you know, that we've talked about demand and desire, but need is simply the things that you require in order to live. You have certain needs, but um, desire, which in terms of the infinite ways in which desire can spread its wings, that starts to come later on. And at first, our desire is very much connected to the other's desire. So our desire is connected to the other and interconnected with it. And part of differentiation and growing up is, uh, is separating and finding a way to affirm your own desire. But your own desire is formed through your earliest relations and also throughout your life, the relationships that you have. Um, and in, in terms of uh, in terms of childhood development, you can talk about two different important moments in which you can start to develop your own desire from the other. And the first is called alienation. Lacan calls it alienation. And alienation is where you start to feel separate from the primary caregiver, right? So say it's your mother, and you, you and your mother are one to all intents and purposes. You can't really draw a line between the two of you. But as the child begins to differentiate, they become an individual, a, sel a self. And they realize and encounter one of the earliest experiences is that they realize that they um, uh, cannot fully be one with the primary caregiver, right? That your mother or your father, whoever it is that's looking after you, has other demands on their life and has other desires apart from you. And that's probably your earliest experience of the reality principle, which is where you, know, you have certain things you want, reality kind of gets in the way. Um, but uh, again, I'm not going to get into the reality principle here, but the key is the reality principle seems to get in the way of what you want, but it also generates what you want because the more you can't have it, the more you want it. And we've already looked at that in relation to law and transgression. So the first experience of the child is I am separate from the primary caregiver. And of course, I want to bridge that gap to some extent. And you see children always trying to dress up and do things to see how they fit in the desire of the other, how they can evoke the desire of the other, right? And uh, that's kind of the earliest notion of fantasy. Fantasy, uh, which we should look at separately, but fantasy can be thought of as an attempt to uh, bridge the gap between, well, it's, it's an attempt to uh, work out what we are for the other. 
what the other wants from us. So our fantasies are often less about our own pleasure, but how we think we fit into the pleasure of the other. Um, and it, so in order to understand that, we have to realize that the other, your primary caregiver, right, they have demands that they make on us, right? They make all sorts of demands about when to eat, about potty training, about uh, uh, you know, who we can play with. There's lots of demands that are made upon us by the other. But also there's the other's desire and they're not completely uh, overlapping, right? I think I mentioned before, you know, you can have a parent who is telling you to not get into fights at school, but then you obey the demand and somebody bullies you and you feel that your parents are a bit disappointed that you didn't hit the person, right? So there's the demand and there's the desire and we all encounter the disconnect between those two things. And a child is always having to deal with that where they do something naughty and the parent tells them off but with a little smile. And there's a little kind of sense in which there's a disconnect between I did something wrong but I think I did what they wanted, right? It's just a natural thing. There is a disconnect and we encounter that. And alienation is the attempt to bridge that gap. But then the next stage is called separation. And separation is when you realize that you can't fully satisfy the desire of the other because their desires are conflictual. They don't know what they want, right? It's not that they are a whole substantial other and I have to figure out how to, uh, how to fit in with their desire, how to fill their desire. They don't know it. So this connects with Hegel's famous saying, uh, the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians as well. In other words, you know, we think that there's these, all these mysteries, and if we could talk to the ancient Egyptians, we would understand <clears throat> what it all meant. But they might go, oh, yeah, it's an enigma to us, right? We're, do, we're doing all of this weird stuff because we're confronted with the mystery. So the notion is that, and this is the second traumatic encounter, is that I'm not simply separate from you. You're separate from yourself. So again, I've explored a theological dimension of this uh, in relation to the... Uh, the covenants, which are a way of separating you from the absolute, and then the crucifixion, which is a way of discovering that the absolute is separated from itself, which then leads to salvation, right? So there's a, we're not going to look at that, but that's part of my, of my theological work. But in terms of the child, you separate from the primary caregiver. You're like, oh, you know, I want to recapture that. Um, but my primary caregiver has other demands in their life and they have other desires. Desire for work, desire for their partner, desire to watch TV, right? You're not everything. And then you discover that it's not just that you can't kind of like become everything for the other. It's like, it's not possible for contingent reasons. It's not possible for necessary reasons, it's, it's literally impossible because the other is not at one with themselves and their own desires. Um, and then at this point, the idea is you can start to uh, develop your own desire that's not either for or against the desire of the, the law of the family. So to put it into societal terms, you could say that <clears throat> um, whenever I obey the law, and whenever I do certain things that society needs me to do, it's not really my desire. It's my desire, but it's also the desire of the other. I'm caught up in the other's desire. Um, I, I know somebody, she, um, she studied law, 
and she wanted to study law, she freely went into study law, but she also wanted to go to art college. And the more she studied law and the further she went into doing legal work, the more she had this other desire to just throw it all in and go to art college. And as we talked, uh, it became obvious that although she desired law because she freely chose it, it was the desire from her perspective you know, like not completely conscious, but the desire of her family, of her mother and her father, that she felt that this was the law, the demand that was being made by them. And it was also their desire. So probably less of a demand, as in, I'm sure her parents didn't say, you have to go to law school, right? They probably said, you can do whatever you want. But there was some sort of sense in which their desire was for her to go to law school. I say whether or not that's the case, because the truth is their desire is probably conflictual as well, right? Or is conflictual. But she, at a deep level, felt that desire from the ones that she desired, right? From her primary caregivers. So there was this, this desire that was within her that was both hers, but also not hers. There was something that she wanted to rebel against with it. Um, and so that's, the, that's what it means to say that your desire is not your desire. Your desire is caught up in something else. It's caught up in what the other demands, what the other wants, what the other desires. So what does it mean to, to have your own desire? Um, and this, this is where it doesn't mean that you find some secret reservoir of your true self and go, oh, I always wanted to be in, uh, you know, a pilot or something like that. It's strangely where you take responsibility for the desires that inhabit you. And this is important because sometimes people think that psycho psychoanalysis is about kind of like not taking responsibility, right? It's always about someone else. Oh, I'm like this because of my family, right? I'm like this because of my, you know, my friends or whatever. Um, but actually at its core, it's about helping the person find themselves within their symptoms and within their desires, the things that they push away, that they say, that's not really me, right? Is to find, to find your subjectivity in yourself. And when you're able to take responsibility for your desires, where you literally aren't uh, doing it because it's demanded of you, or you're not rebelling against it because you want to rebel against that demand. But when you simply take responsibility for your desire, this is where it, it becomes yours and you become free. Now, as soon as you say the word freedom, this becomes complicated, right? Because people immediately think about, well, what does it mean to have a free desire, right? Like, is it, like, can I really freely choose to have coffee over tea, right? Is that not just part of a deterministic chain that goes back you know, that that relates to all sorts of things from I'm drinking coffee because there's a whole economic system that gets that coffee there there's a political system in terms of where it's growing there's a lot of history and then my own personal preferences what I grew up with so how can I freely choose coffee right over tea but that's kind of like this first year philosophy thing about the difference between freedom and determinism um, there's two ways in which your desire is free when you take responsibility for it. And by the way, this is very similar to Nietzsche, right? When Nietzsche talks about master morality, he's not talking about the, the morality of the powerful. He's talking about a type of morality in which you uh, say yes to your fate, 
where you subjectively affirm who you are. Now that doesn't mean you like it, that doesn't mean you think it's good, but it's about taking responsibility for it. Um, and this kind of can lead to a kind of some, something healthier. And he, he contrasts that with a form of what he calls resentment. A resentment is the spiritual condition of resentment. It's where like we, we can all feel resentment occasionally, we all do, I'm sure, but resentment is where you look at everything through the lens of resentment. It becomes a say, spiritual condition where everything you look at, you are jealous and angry and bitter. And, uh, and there's a certain morality for Nietzsche that comes out of this kind of resentment where you're always judging yourself in relation to the other. You're always resenting the other, you're always bitter. And uh, for Nietzsche, um, the part of what one has to do is get over this, this spiritual condition and embrace one's fate and say yes to who one is. Find, find yourself subjectively in the desires that inhabit you, which, by the way, can lead to transformation in your desire. That's for another time. So the first reason why it's free is, you know, some, some philosophers talk about a free act as an act that is embraced by you subjectively. So a free act is whenever you are able to say yes to what is going on. You're able to subjectively tick beside what already exists. That's what Nietzsche means by kind of accepting your fate, by embracing it, uh, not in some sort of uh, resig resignatory way, but in some sort of affirmation of going, this is, I have to take responsibility for myself. This is when one becomes an ethical figure. Because before that, you're being tossed around by the desire of the other, desire of family structures, the law of society, the law of religion, whatever it is, the law is what you're defining yourself for or against, which then generates guilt. In this way, you fully embrace your desires and um, are able to overcome guilt. And then there's a second way in which you could say that this is free. And I think this is much more interesting. And this gets to why I'm interested in Lacan over uh, you know, other analysts like Anna Freud or Winnicott or Bion or, or whatever, because who are interesting, but uh, I'm primarily interested in philosophy. And, and the whole point about Lacan is it's not that he's simply a clinical psychoanalyst. What he's saying has philosophical import. It connects with the nature of reality. And that's primarily what I'm interested in. I'm interested in where our subjective health connects with um, uh, the, the, what's called ontology, but the nature of reality, and where um, we can have communities in which uh, you know, health isn't simply just kind of like living a bit better and getting what we want, but it's somehow living more uh, in tune with the nature of reality. And it, without getting into detail about this, I did a course on this called The Tyranny of Oneness, you can look up, but um, there's this there's this idea that it's not that you have free acts. It's not that you can freely choose to do something or freely choose what to eat or freely choose who to go out with or have these this freedom of choice. Like the, the world is this buffet and you can somehow without determining, determining factors like decide one way or another. Um, it's not that you have free acts, it's that you are freedom, right? That you are the explosion of freedom in the universe. 
It's a different way of looking at it. This is similar to what Jean-Paul Sartre meant when he said we are condemned to freedom. He's not talking about how you can do free acts. He's talking about how you are freedom. Now, uh, Sartre goes a different direction than uh, in psychoanalysis on that. But, um, but the idea is that, that at, at a quantum level, right, in the quantum vacuum, the universe itself has a deadlock. It's not at one with itself. The whole reason why being came out of nothingness, why life came out of being, why consciousness came out of life, why self-consciousness came out of consciousness, is that there is a type of deadlock or antagonism or contradiction that is part of reality itself. And everything that we see is an attempt to bring homeostasis to that antagonism, to try to um, kind of like uh, uh, cover it over or domesticate it. And in, in that sense, the universe is uh, free because there's a non-deterministic dimension at the quantum level of thought and of being. And the self-consciousness is the eruption of that in the world. So yeah, everything you do can be seen as being determined by other things, but your subjectivity itself is an expression of some non-deterministic dimension of reality. And so when you are able to embrace the desires that inhabit you, you're able to find yourself subjectively in them. You're able to kind of like uh, input yourself into what is already there. You will find a certain freedom from guilt. Uh, you'll find, uh, you'll become an ethical and responsible figure. Now by ethical figure, I don't mean you become good. I mean you become capable of evil, right? You're, you're responsible for your acts, which means you're responsible for your bad acts as well as your good acts, but you take responsibility for your acts. Now, I think that when you take responsibility for your acts, you're less likely to be destructive in your behavior. Um, there's that old saying, which I think is quite true, which is bad people will do bad things, but to get good people to do bad things, you have to have religion, right? Or you have to have basically ideology, or to say it another way, you have to have law. You have to have certain demands that are made upon the person that are seen as uh, 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 social conventions that have, to be, be, that have to be obeyed. And that gets bad people to do good things. But when you get people to take responsibility, it's a very Kierkegaardian notion, when you get people to take responsibility for their life and their actions, when they, they embrace their moral decisions, uh, and they don't have an excuse, which is, I was told to do this by this authority figure, by this political system, this religious system, um, then uh, there'll still be some people who will do things that are socially bad and we need to respond to, but actually will generally create healthier communities. So basically, what have we covered in this little reflection? Um, that we're talking about desire in its most general form and how desire is connected to guilt and demand. And we've looked at how um, our desires are not really our desires, they start through the desire of the other, and in a way we just desire what the other desires. But as we grow, we, we start to take responsibility for our desires, and partly it's because we realize that we can't satisfy the other person entirely so therefore why try right you have to take responsibility for your own desires we realize the other 
is a subject as well, which means divided as well. We're all divided subjects. We are, none of us are at one with ourselves. Uh, Orientalism is whenever you imagine some group or some individual as being undivided or non-castrated, as basically having the thing. So some, some, some group that is more connected with nature or, you know, kind of has some sort of more primordial relationship with reality. It's like, no, to be a creature of language is to be a divided subject. Because to, to, that's what desire is. Desire is not having a type of lack. So to desire is to be lacking. And we realize that the other lacks and we lack. We embrace that. We embrace our own desires, whatever they are, right? And by embracing them, we simply take responsibility for them. We instead of saying, oh, they're someone else's, we, we find a way to subjectivize them, to take responsibility for them. And in that, we find freedom. Uh, but as I say, that doesn't necessarily mean that your desires are good or bad, but it means that you're now at the level of taking responsibility for your desires and you're not tossed about like a ship at sea without an anchor, you know, just going wherever the wind tosses it, wherever the law says. So I think that was all I wanted to cover uh, then. Um, uh, if there's other kind of questions that arise out of this, uh, I'll maybe kind of just keep going. Um, other than that, I'll probably come on and start looking at some sort of other interesting theme. But I guess I do want to say this, uh, and maybe it's becoming clear in this third section, is I'm not primarily interested in kind of people's individual guilt and you know feeling less guilty but I'm more interested in how this kind of thinking can lead us to a way of living a way of being that is actually more in tune with the chaos of the universe right that 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 connects us more with everything not in a kind of new age way but in kind of the opposite way that um, we experience in the lack that we have is reflective of a type of antagonism or lack in reality and that we're able to take responsibility for that lack and in doing that we will find that we'll be able to build healthier communities we'll be able to build healthier individual lives and be able to build a healthier society rather than engaging in scapegoating etc so there you go thanks for listening in and i'll talk to you again soon bye-bye